The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, if our luck holds up, that is. And of course, if we stay on the good side of bad boy, Benny Mathers at the board. Sir Benny, how are you today? Oh, pretty good. Uh, it's a little shaky up here. A little shaky. A little shaky. <laughs> a little shaky. What are you shaking from? Was We had an earthquake this morning. Oh, yes, we did. It's been going around, right, Gary? Yeah, it's it's what the kids are doing these days. (laughs) Well, what all the kids are doing. Yeah, right? It's a hula hoop, you know, like for kids. We followed it in in California. In fact, they had another one. But today, when we checked the news, it it wasn't on the uh, national news at at the point where we were checking news. So Actually, they just now had another one within the hour, a smaller one, too. But we had one this morning up here uh, just east of Everett, kind of southeast of Everett, Monroe area. I'm sure you guys are familiar where Monroe is. Yes. Yes. Uh So we had our own little 4746 as well. Oh. Okay. Well, Benny, I know you're up on the fifth floor yeah, great the view. Center, so uh, <laughs> if you need to take a quick trip down the elevator, we'll just cover with some music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something maybe by Diana Ross, for example, might go <laughs> until somebody finally shuts it off. Oh, <laughs> well, boy. anyway, be safe and well. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I've been through Suzanne herself. I will duck this in very quickly that we need to get to our very special guest today, Tori Ryder. But I did want to uh, have you mention very quickly, you kind of haltingly came to Washington when you were in Florida because we had the Olympia quake out in 2001 and you had people saying, you're going to go out there. I was already mentally scheduled uh, to mentally. come out in <laughs> April. <laughs> The earthquake happened in the first few months of 2001, and so everybody in Florida was laughing at me, saying, that's where you're going? You're going out there where they have the earthquakes? Yes, I'm leaving hurricanes to go to earthquakes. So. <laughs> What's next on the, on the list? Yeah, right. yeah, we haven't been through a tornado, so we'll Typhoon have to experience that sometime. Yeah, yeah exactly. We are very fortunate to have a radio professional of the first magnitude, someone who is a legend, oh. and one of those legends, not in her own mind, but in, no, the, an actual legend. in actuality, in the opinion of her peers, and she has worked with so many and so many famous ones over decades in, of experience in radio. Different formats, uh, very well known, even today for her work as a talk radio host, she started out in music, what a fascinating career Tori Ryder has had. She's written a book. She said, what? She said, what? Suzanne, why don't you give this lady her mad props and we'll bring her on air. Tori Ryder is a music and radio host whose voice is known to listeners in Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Portland, Oregon. Her not-quite-empty nest features a broadcasting studio and variously one spouse, two children, a rescued German shepherd, and numerous marauding chickens. We are welcoming once again to Manson Mitchell, Tori Ryder. How are you today, Tori? I am delighted to be here, although you have just made me sound older than Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, and, and actually that's going to be a big part of the interview because you are a pioneer, a female pioneer in radio when it was really all men on the air. And the the stories that you tell in your book, she said, what, are so hilarious. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you were one of the early female on-air 
uh, legends. Well, I, I would love to be able to say that things are different now. Um, first, let me say that I was the youngest uh, pioneer, like maybe five or six. I kid. Um, but but it really is not so much better for women now than, than it was then. And that's, I think, why you see so many interesting, talented, smart, funny women going to other media like TV or movies or podcasting because radio is still pretty much the same uh, – white boys network that it was when I started, um, which is unfortunate because there are a lot of, a lot of interesting people of various uh, groups, genders, orientations who would, who would love to hear themselves on the radio if they found, you know, the opportunity to do so. So that's, that's a sad thing about the business, but it's still a lovely business, as you guys know. Um, and I, I was listening to your introduction about the earthquakes, and I don't know if Gary remembers this, because he and I worked together in Seattle, but I was located in the Bay Area, and I was on the air when we had an earthquake. My studio was in Oakland, and I was broadcasting live in Seattle when we had an earthquake while I was on the air, and I couldn't say anything about it. Cause, now, that you know, would have been back at the World Series quake of 89? No, this was later than that. No, um, you have to be after 2001. It wasn't one of these, you know, bring the city down. It was just one of these moments where you feel a truck hit your house and you realize it's not a truck hitting your house, it's the ground under your house. So yes. you, when you are, I never pretended to be in Seattle when I wasn't, but I certainly didn't say, you know, broadcasting to you in Seattle from the Bay area. So right. I just had to kind of carry on, even though everything in the studio was kind of moving back and forth. It was a moment. It was a moment. That is that's interesting in and of itself, because uh, you, if anyone in radio knows how to keep it real and you also keep a sense of perspective about uh, and we all have our glitches, obviously, but, you know, whom you're talking to, what technology you're using and what you want to say, and you can respond very well in the moment. It's interesting to me that radio is one of those strange animals that it seems amorphous to me. We have these formatics, we have expectations. We, we use fancy words like interstitial when it comes to putting ads in certain places. There, and yet radio wins out in the end for being spontaneous, live for the most part, live entertainment. And we hope that it turns out for the best without satisfying our neurotic expectations that we can ever do such a thing as a perfect show. Well, I think you just said it perfectly. I'll, I'll go home now. Um, <laughs> I think you've, you've wrapped it up very nicely there. That's, that's exactly I mean, the beauty of radio. And look, if the earthquake had really been bringing my house down around my ears, I would have said something. Um, excuse me. Uh, but, but you're right. The whole goal is to have that personal connection with people. And it's lovely, as opposed to movies or TV, to be on the radio because you really can fit in people's lives wherever they are. So if you're listening right now, you might be in your car, you might be in the shower, you might be in your garage working on something, you might be anywhere. And radio is totally portable and it's companionable. That's what I like about talk radio. Your book is so filled with humor, Tori. It had Gary and I laughing and I was talking to a, a girlfriend of, of mine this morning about you and about your book. And I was laughing so hard telling her some of the stories. I do want to get to, you know, a few of the stories today. 
Um, it, it's written in a very humorous style, and all you're doing is relating autobiographically what it was that happened in your life. So, the first thing that I said to my girlfriend was, she was destined to be on radio because <laughs> you started from a very early age pretending to be on the radio. Yeah, I sort of did. I did. And then we had this high school radio station. Uh, but some of the, the most entertaining in retrospect jobs that you will ever have are the ones that you have when you're starting out, when you're trying to be something, when you want to become something and you're not quite there yet. So I think the stories that you mentioned that you're making your way through the book, the early stories about how you have to just sort of claw your way up, like, like how I got my first job by completely fabricating an entire resume and becoming not only a liar but also a thief. I think anybody in any occupation except ideally airline pilot and surgeon has had a certain amount of bluffing involved in, in getting in the door. And, um, and that was true for me, I know. I, I don't know if this is the story you're referring to, but when, when well, that, I went one to of them. Yeah. my first job in radio, yes. um, I, I, uh, I didn't actually have any experience other than my high school radio station. So I wanted to sound like I actually had some experience because you're in this catch-22. And again, this is this is true from anything from being, you know, a, a dog walker to, I, I, I would imagine, a, a working in a fancy restaurant to just, you know, about anything really where you want to sound like you really know what you're doing going in the door. And you know you'll be able to do the job, but you're, you know that you don't have the experience that they're looking for. So... The thing about radio is really who's going to get killed if you don't know what you're doing, really. You know, who's going to get hurt if you just kind of make some mistakes? So I decided I would make up a resume, and I decided I would make it up with stations that were too small to believe that I would have made them up. Like, who's going to make up working in Rantoul, Illinois, for example? Who's going to make up working in, you know, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, for example? But I needed to know where those stations were, and there was at that time a book called the Standard Rate and Data Service Spot Buying Guide. All this stuff's online now, but it was a giant book the size of, like, I don't even know. There are no phone books anymore. It, was, it would have made a good doorstop. It was, it was about three, four pounds and big. And it cost a fortune because it was for the trade, and it was to help salespeople make money by telling them where they could place ads and who ran what station. And the library, the library at the suburb near me had a copy. So... I went down there with my library card. I think I had borrowed a suburban library card because I always have a library card, but I lived in the city of Chicago. So I went in there thinking that I was going to check out this book. And I was just on the top of the ladder reaching for the book in the research section when I saw the sign that said, we don't check out research books. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm not only going to have to lie to get my first job, I'm also going to have to steal this book. So it took me like five seconds to make up my mind, and I balanced on the top of the ladder at the Skokie Public Library, and I took this book down, and I had bought this big purse to carry LPs around in. I stuffed it in the purse. I ran out the door of the Skokie Public Library. I kept the book until I'd copied down everything I needed, and then, of course, knowing that I could never really steal a library book, I, I stuck it in the book return like a month and a half later. But I never, ever, ever darkened the door of any of Chicago's suburban libraries ever again after that. I was afraid, like, I was on some kind of list or something. And then every time I would get a job, I would cross off one of the fake radio stations until ultimately my resume was re all real. 
And I was very proud to tell this story to the first general manager who I wanted to hire me as a talk person, and he was horrified. He thought I was just a complete low-life liar. Little did he know that that's a great qualification for being a talk show host. <laughs> yes, not to mention being a program director. Well, present company excluded <laughs> yeah, if you're true. listening, Eric Kramer. <laughs> We're blessed with a, a very good team where we are, and they stand out for being particularly ethical and generous. Yeah, nobody you work with is like this. No, nobody. Only the people always, I work with. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's what who the other people work Those with. Those other people. And they, and they know a guy. That allows me to segue, Tori. This is perfect, the perfect moment for me to bring up. With all that's happened over the last roughly two years with the Me Too movement, okay, let's go back to the way back when, when Tori Ryder is working in radio and your sister colleagues are trying their best to succeed. Was it was it really just normal? Was there anything completely out of bounds, such as anyone could agree was inappropriate going on that would have put you in the Me Too category that you personally experienced? Well, I will tell you, and it was interesting, I put together a whole panel of women in radio for a museum uh, a few months ago. And we, we're all, we're none of us newbies. We're, we're all middle of our careers or, or beyond. And they were women from public radio, women from commercial radio. The public radio people seem to have had it less of, of the harassment, although prominent people at National Public Radio were fired in the last year for, for misbehavior along those lines. Um, for me, I was, I was so young and stupid that I kind of missed the attempt at Me Too that was offered to me where... Uh, the program director, I had some very low-level music job where I was literally the human music computer. It takes a computer now like three seconds to print out all the music that the station's going to play. But in those days, you did it by hand. And then I would drive up for my on-air gig 100 miles out of town in Rockford, Illinois. And the boss of the station came to me and said, how would you like to go to this broadcast meeting in, in, of, in Florida? And I... I was so foolish. I was like, why, "Why would you invite me, the music girl, you know, to go to go to Florida for this big fancy broadcast convention?" I may have actually spoken those words to him. That's how stupid I was. And I think that my stupidity in this in this instance may have protected me because he said, "I, I said, you know, well, I'm sure there are people here who would benefit far more from attending that convention than than I would. I'm I'm just." here in the music library, and he either threw up his hands at my complete naivete, or he realized that, you know, it, he wasn't going to get anything out of me other than a, you know, perhaps eager person to attend a music radio convention, so he moved along to somebody else. But it's interesting because the minute I showed up on Facebook many years ago, who found me within seconds, this same creepy guy? hey, I'm on my fourth wife, just got divorced from my fourth wife, and how are you doing? And I said, I've been happily married for 20 years. <laughs> then he went away again. So, so these guys don't change much. What I would say was, was more normal um, was a kind of a level of, of sexual harassment that, that would just look totally out of place now. There was one guy who who there at that point there was the program director's girlfriend was the music director and she was on the air and I was on the air in the overnights and they'd hired a woman from evenings out of Texas who was just adorably cute and young and there was a creepy guy 
who would put up pictures from um, Playboy magazine with like her head stuck on them and a lot of stuff like that that just you know really would not be even considered mild. I, it wasn't funny then, and it would get you fired now because now there's a human resources policy about it. Um, I think what happened a lot is if you were if you were good looking, people assumed that you'd gotten your job by sleeping with the boss, even if you hadn't. Um, and I'm sure that there were women who felt a lot of pressure to sleep with the boss. Um, I blissfully escaped a lot of that. Um, and I also had the privilege, when you worked at the really good stations, uh, the guys a lot of times were total pros. And by then, they'd been around the block a few times, and often they were on their second or third marriage, and they were perfectly happy going home to their wives, most of them. And management the same. So either I was just abnormally fortunate or, um, you know, I, I worked with them and treated them like, like I dressed like them. I wore boots and jeans and flannel shirts like the guys did. Um, sometimes they thought I was a lesbian. <laughs> my, my philosophy about a lot of this is if you say no to enough guys, um, a lot of guys have enough ego that they don't take it personally when you say no to them because they know you say no to everybody. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, it I don't know if I'm answering your question very well. You I, are. I, You're I, reminding I, me of so many I, things yeah. from the past, too. Do you know that there was many a con there I had many conversations back in the day. I'm going back to my college years where Playboy magazine came with the uh, the usual wonderful articles, which was the only reason any of us bought those copies. And they would have the strangest anatomical feature. These lovely models, gorgeous women, were afflicted with staple navel. And so people would, they would go through these and look at these beautiful women in various provocative poses. Sooner or later, in a conversation with three or four guys talking about the latest issue, some jamoke would have to say, you know, all those chicks are lesbians. <laughs> and, I, and I would say, no. Practically none of them are lesbians. The situation here is that they're not lesbian, and because you are poor and of no repute, they're not interested in you. So there you go. Just be, right. It's not general. It's personal. It. It's personal to you. That's right. There you go. You you reminded me of something with the Playboy reference. So I remember um, I was at WLS in Chicago, which was the big top forty station at the time, and I got a call from the publicist from Playboy. They were going to do a piece on the women of Chicago radio. Now, they had just done a women in rock piece, and nobody was nude at all. Like Chrissy Hine was in it, I want to say, and maybe Pat Benatar. I don't remember exactly who they had. But they wanted to do a piece on the women of Chicago radio or the women of radio or something like that. And so I said, well, you know, are you going to do this like the women of rock where we wear cool clothes or do you wish to have nudity? What, what do you want from the women of Chicago radio? And they got back to me and they said, well, we want partial nudity. And I said, well, what is partial nudity? Is that like one breast or like, well, what is partial <laughs> nudity exactly? And then they made it clear that it wouldn't be just one breast, which didn't matter to me because, you know, I, I, I said, well, here's the deal with me. If I wouldn't want my father to see it, I'm not doing it. So thanks, but no thanks. And apparently, and this speaks to your earlier question, all of Chicago radio's women, and every station had at least one, and we were all pretty good looking because unlike the guys who looked like bowling balls with eyes attached, we all had to look hot. 
Um, and, and, and that was just a requirement. I mean, they would say so. And if you pointed out that the guys looked like bowling balls with eyes, they didn't care. Part of the job for you was to look good. So all of the women of Chicago Radio, each and every one of us said, no, thank you. And they ended up photographing, you know, some disc jockey's girlfriend who refiled records at the station. Um, so I think that, at least in, in a general way, women who were making their way in broadcasting really insisted that we be treated professionally and we all acted accordingly. And if we've made any progress at all, I think it's because women demanded that they be treated as as much like the men as we could be. Um, That's even absolutely though they were never going to let us have all the juicy shifts that the men that, that the men were getting. Right, right. And Pro- yeah, professional dignity right. would require that you would think. But Suzanne reminded me today, there over our breakfast coffee of your story in your book. She said what? your story about National Secretary's Day and what appears to me to have been a deliberate slap done by somebody who insisted on being a a butthead there. Please tell that story before we go to break. I will, although I must tell you that the person who did it, I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. So I come into work and I'm working the overnight shift. There are two shifts for girls. The midday shift, where you don't really get to be a personality, you play a lot of records because people are at work, and the overnight shift, where nobody's paying attention, so you can really have some fun, but you never see anybody because you're asleep all day. So I come in for my shift, which starts at 2 a.m., and it's about 1 in the morning, and I see a huge bouquet of flowers on the counter in the studio, and I say to the guys on the air before me, wow, some lucky woman is going to get these flowers when you get off work. How nice. And he said, no, no, Turi, they're for you. And I thought about it, because I had a boyfriend who, who was not the greatest boyfriend in the world at the time. And I thought, what on earth did he do to send me these flowers? It's not his style at all. And then as I was thinking, my coworker said, they're for you for Secretary's Day. And I realized that every single secretary, which was all the other women in the place, uh, except for one morning news anchor, and I don't think they sent her flowers, I'm not sure, they had all gotten flowers for Secretary's Day, and apparently my boss just couldn't imagine any woman in the place who wasn't in, the, in her soul a secretary. So I don't, I, I have to say, he was not a mean person. He meant no harm. In his world, that's really what women were. They were secretaries, they were assistants, they were there to make the guy's job easier, And so he sent me flowers for Secretary's Day with the best of intentions. Happy Secretary's Day. In fact, I'm going to add this on. The the play is um, turning into a book. And uh, I'm sorry, the book is... (laughs) I am going to see now. The book is turning into a one-woman show. And um, my director asked me for a list, a couple of lists. And one of the things that I put together was a list of things that nobody ever says to men in broadcasting. And if you want, I'll share that with you after the break. Well, I think that would be... You know what? We have a few minutes. Why don't you tell us now, Tori? Oh, boy. Well, then now you're going to make me find that. (laughs) Hold on. I have it in the computer. I don't have it committed to memory yet. Um, So maybe maybe you can ask me another question while I find it in my computer. You know what? If you well, want to find there that, was it, a, there was a comment I wanted to make, and I and I yes. think you kind of answered the question, and it had to do with 
and the, and one of the reasons why why I was talking about your being, you know, uh, one of the pioneering women on air, is uh, in those early years, and and you said it hasn't changed, you know, a whole lot uh, today, but the women only had the two shifts. I mean. And, and you ended up working a lot of overnights early on in your career because it's like, well, we can we can put the girl overnight if they were going to attempt, you know, any kind of uh, gender acceptance. They were going to salt you away where, you know, you weren't going to be heard very much on the overnight. But interestingly enough, and you talk about, you know, how you were arm candy more than once because all the girls are young and cute and then, um, and so they they used to send you out on these uh, on these promotional things because they weren't going to send out the the bowling ball with eyes. They wanted to send out the cutest person that they had at the studio to represent the studio. So it's interesting that you're not being seen in radio, but yet you're doing the promotional work. Yes. Yes, that's true. That's a good observation. It was in particular, there was a country station I worked for that uh, would send me into bars in the middle of the night to give away free beer, which is a bad combination. Um, and they would send me with no uh, security No, it's not. That's the most brilliant thing ever. <laughs> what do you think? That's a bad idea. Are you kidding me? Well, it was bad for me. It was, I'm sure it was All lovely right, for touche, the patrons of the bar, but thank God there was a... Um, and, it, and I've been very lucky. You, this is back to your point again about the Me Too thing. As many times as I've had to deal with, with difficult and perhaps abusive guys in radio, I've also had more than my share of lovely guardian angel men who who really kept me safe in some dangerous situations. And I, you know, I'm very, very privileged to be friends with, with men all over this industry, um, great men who promote women and who um, give women every chance they're capable of taking. And I, I had my life saved by the guy who did the shift before mine at this country station who used to, they would send me on the weekend when neither of us was on the air and was supposed to be my day off, but the station did it anyway. And they would send me in, and this guy would show up and basically function as my, as my bodyguard. He was like 6'4". He had uh, been drafted to the major leagues for baseball. He was a huge guy, and he'd had an injury, so he'd gone into radio instead. But he physically protected me so I could get in my car and away from the free beer, free T-shirt, swilling, wearing guys who would gladly, and at one time before he got there, picked me up like a sack of onions and were carrying me around the bar, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make them stop. So he he, uh, he showed up and, and made them put me down and got me to my car, which was quite That's, an undertaking. I, I'm, I've been present where these sorts of things went on. It wasn't in connection with radio, just in life. I have seen this kind of thing happen. And for all those who say, oh, these stories, you know, everybody embellishes or that's just a fantasy. No, you know, it would be nice to have that comfort. The fact of the matter is crazy stuff happens, abusive stuff happens, and it happens every day about everywhere in America. Can't speak for the world, but I've been around these United States and in various capacities, regardless of profession. I mean, you even see weird, untoward stuff going on in churches. But that's really? a story for another day. We have Turi Ryder with us. She has written a brilliant book, a memoir, 
called. She said what? It is provocative. It is written. And you know that this lady wrote it. Turi Ryder wrote this book because it features most prominently her characteristic dry wit and her observational sense of life and how underlying all of it, there is reason to laugh. Yes, it can be a struggle and the successes are glorious, but in between there's a lot of hard work and she's done it in her chosen profession of radio. We'll get back to more stories, true stories from She Said What and our special guest, Turi Ryder, on the other side of a short break. So stick with us. We are Manson Mitchell and you are tuned into the home of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. It was a goal that I wanted to achieve from the very beginning. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. I wasn't sure if I could do it. It was very hard for me, but the teachers, the counselors, they help you. One of the teachers was uh, Miss Araceli. Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. Every single time I had a question, she'll put down whatever she's doing and she'll come over and she'll sit there with you until you get it. At age 47, with the help of his teacher, Marco finished his high school diploma. 50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. Getting your high school diploma, it is a life-changing experience. It really is. It catapults you to where you want to go. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Tori Ryder with her humorous stories of being a female pioneer in the radio industry. Very funny. On Saturday, medium Vincent Jenna returns in part two of a two-part interview and will be taking lots of calls with messages for you. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We're on the radio. Tori Ryder's on the radio. She's been on most of her life, it seems. Tori, your book, which I cannot recommend highly enough, it is so funny reading through it. Where can people get your book? What is your website? How can our listeners connect with you? Well, the book, it's very cool. It's from a, a small press, an indie press called Tortoise Books. So the best deal is to go directly to tortoisebooks.com, and they have a sale price. Or if you're an Amazon person, um, I think it's like two bucks more, and it's probably easier just to go to Amazon and put in Turi, T-U-R-I, Ryder, like the truck, or She Said What, 
Um, and then the book will pop right up, and you can click and order it. Or if you're a bookstore fan, as I am, any independent bookstore can order the book. Any bookstore can order the book. And I'd love it if, if you did. I will happily, happily um, show up in your backyard, if you're not careful, <laughs> and sign it for you. Uh, actually, I think if you order from Tortoise, sometimes they have me come in and do a signing of a bunch of them. So order from Tortoise, and, and, and if enough people order, I'll go down to my publishers and sit down at a table and sign a bunch of books. Anyway you get it, I'm glad for you to have it. And I, I am told that it makes good in-car, long-drive summer reading. I just heard from some people who said they made a long road trip reading it to each other. So that's good. I personally find it goes well if you're in the facilities. It's in short um, short pieces. Short so chapters. Stay there a while, yeah. you can read a, lo- a lot. And if you're going to stay in that little room for a short time, you can read a short amount. <laughs> I recommend yes. it for that kind of reading. I-, I like the fact that you've broken it up into a lot of short chapters because as Gary and I were reading it to each other, and you know, they, it was anywhere from like one to ten pages, and uh, some of them were, you know, four, five, six pages long, and they were complete in what it was that you wanted to share in that chapter. But I'm glad you broke it up in that way instead of, you know, dynamically long, long well, my things. My editor gets the credit for that. I found ah. the list, by the way, Suzanne. I found the list: things that nobody says to men in broadcasting. Okay. Okay. I've got it. You asked me about what it's like to be a woman versus a man in broadcasting. So these are things that have actually been said to me in radio stations or while I've been looking for jobs in radio stations by men. I will clean up one one little piece by just leaving that word conspicuously blank. So you will know what word goes there. Things nobody says to men in broadcasting. One. The minute we get more than one of you in this place, you fight like cats. Two, we want a boy who can talk about sports that guys want to. Three, we tried hiring a man. It didn't work out. Four, we don't think Philadelphia wants to hear the things you say coming from a man. Five, you look nice in a skirt. Six, do you think you could make your voice sound more appealing? Seven, I think he's sleeping with the program director. Eight, Happy Secretary's Day. That's, That's a beautiful. great list. And to which I will add one more. Yeah. You know, he's a lesbian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should add that. I may, if you, if you don't mind. With attribution, of course. Yeah, that's another one. I was surprised to find that I was a lesbian. Um, someone told me later on in my career that, that the reason that I was not sleeping with the people at the radio station, everyone knew was that I was sleeping with a newswoman across town. I, I found that fascinating. <laughs> okay. I went through a, a long stretch of not dating, and I feel quite sure the same thing was said about me. And uh, But since I wasn't there to hear it, I couldn't dispute it. Right. So there you go. Well, and then I actually did work with a, a, a lesbian woman and her longtime partner, and, and she was convinced that if I slept with any men at all, I must then sleep with all men. So some listener convinced her that he was my boyfriend and he got her and her partner to lend him money for something by claiming that his bona fides were that he was my boyfriend which was very odd Uh, and i didn't find out about any of this until this woman called and said i don't know the name of the guy we'll just call him joe you you need to call joe and make him give us back our our five hundred dollars and i said who 
who? And what? And she said, well, your boyfriend. And I said, I actually have a boyfriend. You, you know who he is. So, so why would you imagine? Well, he told us he was, he was your, your boyfriend, and he named what, a horse at the racetrack. We lent him money, and he bought a horse, and he named it after you. I said, well, anyone can name a horse after anyone. There's no law against it. You could name your horse Donald Trump if you want to, and nobody can stop you. So then she said, well, he's your boyfriend. We know he's your boyfriend because he knew that you were going to take last Monday and Tuesday off. And I said, well, so do 50,000 watts of listeners because I told them I was going to be taking Monday and Tuesday off. <laughs> and, and at that point, they realized they were out 500 bucks. Mm. You know, this is, it's odd to go yeah, back here. That. Yeah, I'm being interstitial and not necessarily in a rational way here, but I just didn't want to end this hour without at least asking you about it, Tori. When you were growing up, did you not spend a little time in Manhattan, Kansas? Yes, my grandmother called it the wrong Manhattan. My grandmother lived in Manhattan, New York. My mother grew ah. up in Manhattan, New York. Yes, we were in, my father, um, my father had a hard life. He was orphaned very young, and he, you know, he periodically went through, I think now we would probably call it a depression, but it, nobody knew what it was at the time. So he, he left the University of Chicago, and he took a job with his own lab where he only had to deal with the people he wanted to deal with in Manhattan, Kansas. And that was a, that was a tough move for us um, to be in Manhattan, Kansas, for the main reason that we, we are a Jewish family and we were practicing Jews, and there were almost none of us in Manhattan, Kansas. And at that time, it was perfectly acceptable to believe that Jews had done terrible things in the world and had been personally responsible for, uh, at least as far as I could tell, my classmates had all been told that I had personally killed Jesus and they were going to defend Jesus on, um, on me. So that was a very difficult place to, to grow up, and um, things are much better now. And even there, you know, there were lovely people who were not like that, but that, that was sort of, they'd never seen any, any Jews. They didn't know any Jews. They thought we had horns because of some painting that Michelangelo did, and they would ask to see my horns. It was, it was kind of a hard life. Very but, bizarre. Um, there were good things about it. Um, there were a lot of good things about it. You could ride your bike anywhere. You could be gone all day. You could, you know, you had to watch out for snakes, but you could find kittens yeah. in the neighbor's barn, and you could you could have a good childhood in lots of other ways, just not at school. Your recollection is taking me back to my one viewing of Borat when, in his town where he came from. I was in Kazakhstan. They had the annual running of the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> It's, there, there, there is uh, underlying darkness and truth in some of what he does. Um, but yeah, yes. there's, if you don't, here's the universal that comes from this. If you don't know people, it's really easy to hate them. It's really easy to hate what you don't know. But once you get to know people as people, it becomes much harder to believe evil of them. Um, and so I think there were probably one or two people in Kansas who you know, could say later on, even if they never left Kansas, well, you know, we knew some Jewish people, and they they seemed to be okay. They're, they volunteered for the same things we volunteered for, and they, you know, came to school the same as everybody else, and, you know, they just didn't have the same holidays. At least I hope that helped, but uh, it was pretty hard. It was difficult. 
I did have a particular reason for bringing up Manhattan, Kansas, which for the uninitiated is the home of the University of Kansas, KU. No, it is not. I'm stopping you right there. KU is, no, it's K-State. K-State. And there is rivalry and enmity between KU and K-State. Okay. Well, I got it. I don't even get half a point because I got the wrong university. It's a university town, a college town, and I didn't get the right one. And here the whole setup, the premise of my asking the question is thus destroyed for all the world to hear. Well, then let me ask a question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it, but I owe it to the Wildcats to speak truth. (laughs) Yeah. because at the University of Kansas, in the academic community, Kansas is a wide state, so it probably didn't happen. But with your dad having come from the University of Chicago, no less, mm-hmm. was there any opportunity for him in Kansas to meet, to associate with William S. Burroughs and some of the beat generation? Because I'm thinking that might have been going on at the time. Well, I think my father, as I mentioned, was probably depressed. He didn't really come out of his lab for about three years. He was just in the lab all the time. Um, I mean, he was a good dad when he was out of the lab. He just he just threw himself into his work. But I will tell you that it was, in fact, the the late '60s. At that point, it was six, we were there '66, '67. We were there six, like '66 through 1970, right, right around there. And even in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, the war was making its presence felt perhaps even more acutely because these were loyal Americans and they were they were going to Vietnam and some of them were not coming back and it was I believe during this time that Paul Harvey who was one of the first people I remember hearing on the radio who had been very very pro-war um, started to change his mind about whether um, whether Nixon was was right to be involved in, in Vietnam so there were peace marches. I remember having my face painted, you know, and I remember that my my mother's mother's helper, because she had just had her youngest child, um, was talking about you know taking her boyfriend to Canada, and it, it was it was um, it was a time of great flux, and it was a time when oh, and we were near Fort Riley also. So there were a lot of of people really thinking carefully about. Um, that aspect of the 60s about the war that that was a real people in university weren't going to get drafted but the minute they were out they could go to vietnam and i remember also being at summer camp and all the male counselors when they when they read the draft numbers um, they all got special permission to go to the to the meeting hall and and hear the draft numbers being pulled because mm. if you got a low number that it was you know that was it you were going to vietnam Oh, how chilling that would be. Yes, I remember the draft lottery. I missed it by a couple of years myself. But when the concept came out, I thought, wow, they're gambling with lives now. That's incredible. So, yes. Um, anyway, thank you for that correction. I was among the uninitiated. I knew it was a college town. I just got the wrong university. Well, it, so was, that- it, it was the big ag school and the big veterinary school for the state. It was the more rural of the two. And my father, as a microbiologist really got involved in, in the microbiology of, of ag and vet medicine and, and genetics. and. Um, oh, wow. If only I could talk to him about the University of Chicago. What a glorious institution that is. Amazing. Well, we have Northwestern Wildcat Suzanne. She's got a question here. Let's get her involved again. Well, one of the things that definitely comes out in your memoir is how many places that you worked, how many different states that you worked in, 
and of course even even moving as a child have you have you ever stopped to just list how many places you've been how many states you've lived in how many <laughs> cities you've lived in i've i've tried not to not to count uh more st- more states than boyfriends i can tell you that so that's good um <laughs> i um I will say that we a lot of the moving around in the book started when we were little because my father did the university thing. You did your, your doctorate, then you did a postdoc, and you didn't do that in the same place you did your Ph.D. And So there was a lot of that. And then once they stopped moving, I just sort of thought it was natural to move. And because there was only one out of six opportunities for women as, that there were for men, um, if you really wanted to, to move along, you pretty much often had to leave town, at least from my vantage point. Otherwise, you could stay on overnight forever and ever on end. So um, I, I did live in all those states that you've mentioned. Um, but I will tell you that when I became a mom, uh, and I've been married now for about 25 years, but w- when I became a mom, I knew that I did not want that for my children. I did not want them to not have a community around them that had known them um, for years. And so at that point, the technology had advanced so that I could put a studio in my house. But it definitely changed the trajectory of my career um, not being able to, to move around for work. So... I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but well, it does uh, in the fact that, and I think the technology is a, a great part of it. I mean, we don't uh, hide the fact that we live in Sarasota, Florida, and we're broadcasting out of Seattle because the technology allows us to do that. And you had to go from place to place at that time to keep moving up in your career, so that you know, radio for everybody who who's in it is a very vagabond lifestyle until the technology allowed you not to have to move to the city where you're broadcasting from. Which and, is both and, a blessing and a curse. I mean, you guys are right. in a great position of having lived and, and spent many, many years in, in Washington. Yes. So you yes. really know the place. Um, I think I think radio is experiencing something where it's, it, starting to value really knowing the place, at least talk radio, because um, there are syndicated shows, they can be anywhere. But if you want to invest in a local show, it's really, I think, actually important that the show be where the listeners are, or at least, as in your case, that the hosts really understand and know what the listeners' lives are like in that place. Um, Yes. Because... There really is a difference between life in Chicago and life in San Francisco, and um, there are things that are that are common to the culture of one place and not the other. And the audience connects with you based on feeling that you're connected and, and understand their lives. I'm not saying it's an absolute requirement, but it definitely helps. And I've heard, I mean, I'll never forget. There was a host who came to Chicago who was. I'm sorry to have to say this. He spent a lot of his career in Florida, and he kept talking about things that that nobody in Chicago really had an experience of of doing. And after a while, you could just sort of feel people throwing up their hands going, you know, what does this have to do with us? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and I think I made that mistake. There was a, a 
believe it or not, there was a chain of donuts that I really had. They were in just about every city, but they were not in Seattle. And somebody pointed out to me that to talk about the ads for this for this chain of, it was Dunkin' Donuts, and to talk about ads for this Dunkin' Donuts chain that was really not present in Seattle was kind of insulting to the people in, in Seattle, and I, I, I understood, and I thanked them for explaining that to me, and I knew exactly what they meant, and I gave it up immediately. But, you, you know, it's important to be, to be living the right. life that your listeners live in, well, in some measure. And, and- and Gary and I are aware of that, which is, you know, why we will check on the Internet or the news to see what is going on in, in Seattle so that we are not completely ignorant when we come to the microphone and didn't know that they had an earthquake this morning. I didn't know anything about Manhattan, Kansas, so I don't well, care. But here's what it is. I mean, you guys know what it's like to live in Washington when there's an earthquake. You know what oh, that's yeah. like. And Went so, through it. I, I, yes. So it's not that you, you know, you don't have to be there right at that moment. You know, and you're, when you, the, when you listen to this show, you, one knows that you know. That's right. Well, there's right. an affinity. I often say Seattle is my spiritual homeland, Seattle in Puget Sound. That's always going to have a big piece of my heart if I live to be 100. And I always look forward to going out there and doing live shows whenever I can. And you so, do. Yes. Yeah. And so we do that from time to time. But I do know what you're talking about. Very quick anecdote. I was the producer of an overnight show at another station in Seattle years ago. And the host got some gigs from Milwaukee to Denver, a couple other places. Good for him. But he always wanted to act like he was a local. And I thought that was a strategic mistake. I was proven right the night that he was doing a shift in Denver, but he wasn't anywhere near Denver. I think he was still in Seattle at the time there and was not up on the latest news there. And so when he took calls, somebody called up and said, wow, that deer that ran amok at the city park there in Denver almost caused a traffic tie up and a bunch of accidents. That was a near miss. Incredible. What did you think of that? So and so. And he's going, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, dear. You would. Were you involved in that? <laughs> but I'm there, yeah, it's like, wow, that was really something, huh? You know, so uh, we figure our philosophy is this is where we live. Seattle is from where we broadcast, and we like to stay in touch so that we sound relevant. You are quite right. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's, I'll just tell you a little anecdote from here um, right now, because now I'm in Chicago talking to you from Chicago. Um, there is an alligator in the park, in one of the Chicago's many parks, there is a five-foot-long alligator whom they are affectionately calling Chance the Snapper. Who's I been saw it on the news. I saw it on the news. In this park now for several yeah. days, and it's quite taken the city. But in, you know, in, in Florida, that, that wouldn't be so odd. <laughs> it, the whole city wouldn't go nuts if there were an alligator in their public park. I mean, No, they, there's thousands here. Within right, exactly. Distance. My husband's from Florida, and I showed him this news story, and he said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you become inured. I, within walking distance of where Suzanne and I live, we can go to a church and have done so several times, where on one occasion, right in the middle of a sermon, the minister was talking, and people were looking out the window because there were three-sided windows there in this, uh, this church location and looking out to a park and then the, the uh, river that ran through the park, 
by God, there was an alligator in springtime, mating season, and you could see it plying the waters, and people were no longer paying attention to the sermon. And I'm going, now that's a thing you don't see in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> well, being upstaged by an alligator is something that probably hasn't happened much in Seattle. Um, <laughs> but Well, there but, were some pretty creative example, names, by the way. There were some creative names. They had Frank Lloyd Bite and Croc Obama were the other two choices, by the way. Croc Obama. <laughs> I like those, Those too. are pretty good. Yeah, those are pretty but, darn but, good. But Chance, I mean, Obama lived here for a while, but right. Chance the Snapper is from here. so It's more current, yeah. Yeah, it was from here. Right. Um, but, it, it, for example, when I was working in Portland and, and, and often traveled to Seattle and I really loved going by on the train, the place where that woman um, fed all the eagles. And so you see from the train, like a zillion eagles there from the train window, mm-hmm. trying to remember the name of the town in Washington where all those eagles have landed. And we're not talking the Space Project. But you see those things in the Pacific Northwest. And if you see an eagle flying around out here, like that, that just, you, you call the whole neighborhood over to take a good look at that. You don't, you know, wouldn't. Wouldn't think twice about it in various parts of Washington State, but here it would be a news event. We we always got excited when we saw eagles from our apartment in, in, in that neighborhood. In we Seattle, had them around yeah. a river and golf course there, so we got to see them. And more than once, I saw three crows, very intelligent creatures, run an eagle off, sent it off the reservation to protect their nest. Those crows, you can't beat them, and they're all over Seattle, by the way. Turi Ryder, we are always thrilled to talk to you, my friend. We must do part two, and Suzanne and I have the ambition of meeting up with you lunch afterward, and we'd like to go downtown and do part two of your wonderful book, She Said What, up close and personal, live with you when we're in Chicago in October. Hope that can happen. I would love that, and next time you're in Seattle, I can meet you out there, and we can can hang out with the Eagles. Oh, I like that, too. I love that. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Tori. Once again, her memoir, it's a beautiful thing to read. She said, what amazing stories told with her characteristic dry wit and intelligence. And Tori Ryder is T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R. I just want to spell that in case somebody's going online. Thank you, Tori. We will talk to you again in a matter of months. I hope they pass quickly and have fun this summer. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. All right. Coming up next. Coming up next, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience. And then at 1 o'clock, Carrie Mance on American Road Trip Talk. We're going to hit the open road. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Let this be the start of your great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.